It's Najee Dorsey here with another installment of Bio Talks. Today, we've got the great pleasure of talking to one of our art icons, uh, Nelson Stevens. I mean, he might be a little humble, may not want to like that tag, but uh, uh, he's definitely an iconic artist. Uh, we're all familiar with the work of Nelson Stevens and his membership in Afro-Cobra. Just a, a brief little bio, uh, born in Brooklyn. If, and if, and if, if this bio is not, if it's inaccurate, inaccurate in any way, just let me know. But I'm just gonna read a little bit. Born in Brooklyn, New York, Stevens received his BFA in painting from Ohio University in Athens in 1962. He received an MFA in 1969 from Kent State University. And after a brief teaching stint at Cleveland, Ohio, was hired as assistant professor of art at um, Northern Illinois University, where you taught from- That goes the other way around. I was in Cleveland during junior high school teaching before I went to Kent State. Oh, I see. Okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling it from uh, Mertice, so we had to talk with Mertice about getting this, getting this updated. So anyway, let's get into, let's get into the history from the artist to hear the artist's voice. And so to start off, a couple of my, my first question is, I want to get into like the early years before we get into the stuff that the meat that most people are familiar with, the body of work that you were creating in the 60s and 70s. So if you would tell us a little, a little bit about your childhood, where you were born. And, you know, when did, when did you first realize that you were making art? My parents are from New York. Um, my mother grew up in Harlem with two sisters. My father was a uh, half-mile champion from Rochester, New York. He got a uh, scholarship to NYU, and that's where they met at the Renaissance uh, dancing. Both of them loved to dance. Mm -hmm. And this is the mid-30s. So she liked uh, Fletcher Henderson. And they used to go dancing all the time. Um, I grew up, and my mother's favorite drummer was Chick Webb. And that was always amazing because Later in life, uh, I became good friends with Max Roach, mm -hmm. and she they had long conversations about the music from the Renaissance and the Savoy, uh, Savoy, where my mother and father had danced. But I grew up, if you've been to New York City, mm -hmm. you can go from one end of the block to the other end of the block uh, looking at five-story buildings apartment houses. And I grew up uh, from about the age of three to about the age of six in a uh, five-story. And the reason that they're five stories is because if you had six, you needed an elevator. Oh, okay. Never knew that. So all of those buildings, there's no elevator in any of them. That's right. So, uh, and you can go from one end of the block to the other end of the block on the roofs because they all touch. Mm -hmm. And you, well, we used to, uh, as little guys, we'd go up in the dumb waiters because that was the way to get rid of your trash. And my grandmother lived on the, on the fifth floor. And we lived on like on the fourth floor. And I knew kids that lived on different floors. So our 
convey about we never hardly used the steps. <laughs> we used <laughs> the garbage system to communicate with each other. Um, and one day when uh, the girls had finished playing hopscotch, mm-hmm. um, we were up on the roofs checking out the guys who had pigeons, because that's the other thing that was on the roofs. And there's a lot more of that then than there is now. Every block had a flock of pigeons. At any rate, we watched the girls go, and they left the chalk on the sidewalk. So we went down, and we started drawing on the sidewalk. And I would draw Dick Tracy, and I would draw women, and I would draw Donald Duck and different things like that. Mm-hmm. And then we go back up on the roof to see how it was. And I think that was my first mural. Okay. Uh, looking down on it. And I also found out that I was scared of heights more than most other people. Because I would go out on my stomach where everybody else, almost everybody else, would go out to the edge standing up. Oh, look at the, wow. Look at yeah, that's yeah, that's that's, da- that's dangerous right there. I know. Uh, I I I share that that fear of heights with you at that at that level, no doubt about it. So yeah. so 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 the um those were those were the early days creating. That was the first time you recall was picking up some chalk. So you wasn't you know nobody put art supplies in your hand first. It was just natural. I did in school, and I got an award to go to the Museum of Modern Art through that in the fourth grade. I would take the subway uh, once a week on Saturday and take classes there. Um, I did that for a couple of years. I won scholarships to go to the Museum of Modern Art. And at the Museum of Modern Art at that time, uh, there was Picasso's Guernica Mm -hmm. uh, was in there. I'm not sure how many years it was there before it went back over to Spain. But in the 40s and early 50s, it was at the museum. So I got a chance to look at that and learn from it. Mm-hmm. And I had a great time. I went, uh, after high school, I went to Utica, New York for junior college. And I worked on a degree in advertising design and production. Uh, but I found, uh, by going downtown, I found the black community. And in one of the bars that played jazz, I did a mu- my second, what I call my second mural. Mm-hmm. And I did it in there because they had a great kitchen. And it meant that as a student, I could eat. <laughs> <laughs> and as a 20-year-old, that's very important. Um, after junior college, and I got adopted by a couple who had five kids, and they were like uh, beboppers, beatniks. They were readers, and they played games with words, and they, but they were deep into the music. Charlie Parker was like a deity to mm-hmm. both of them and to the to the rest of the family. Let me ask you this: and, when, 
when you think, I'm mean, sorry, I, mean, I don't want you to forget your, your place, but when you think of uh, that period, like from the time of being in fourth grade, going to MoMA for those classes, through the time when you were 20, I mean, you mentioned Picasso. Any other artist works that you were seeing do the, doing the, during, during that period that you recall? Alfredo Lam, mm-hmm. uh, a Cuban, a black Cuban, uh, who worked with some of the surrealists. His, his painting was in the lobby, and I got into his work. But not really. Okay. Uh, they, they took us towards the European, the, the Renaissance. And we learned about the Renaissance through the museum. Um, but when I went to Utica, New York, I had been, the last year of my uh, high school, 1956, mm-hmm. I had a job at RCA Communications and found out through this friend of mine that all the great jazz was at the Cafe Bohemia in um, in Greenwich Village. So we would go to the Cafe Bohemia uh, almost every week. And I would do drawings there. So when I went up to Utica and I ran into these uh, beboppers, they looked at my drawings and, and they knew who everybody was. Hmm. They had stories about the people. And that got me in solid with a lot of the older um, musicians and people in the community. So, so at that time, at that time, were you were you were you able to to sell or trade any of those drawings for anything during that period? No, not really. Okay. And I have no idea where any of them are now. Mm-hmm. I don't. I'm not a collector, as such. So a lot of stuff from my early career uh, is not available. But uh, then I went to, I got a degree in advertising design and production and went to Albany and for six months, I, uh, I couldn't figure out what really to do. Although I was never unemployed, I, uh, cause I worked on the longshoremen. Mm-hmm. I had a longshoreman's car, and I uh, worked at the apartment store doing dressing the windows, uh, pinning up the mannequins, and I worked at a printery as well. But I decided I was going to go back to school, so I went to Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, uh, because it was still close to the uh, East Coast Mm -hmm. where I grew up. But it was a land-grant state, which meant that if you graduated from high school, you could go to college. That, ch- that changes the country, different state by state. Um, so I got out of, so I started teaching afterwards. Um, junior high, they put me in the worst junior high in Cleveland. It was terrible. Um, Patrick Henry Jr. High. It was all black. It was, uh, the faculty was about half and half. And uh, the white uh, faculty members were always complaining about how the school used to be so good. But since this inflection of black people, um, they didn't used to turn black. 
um, mm. you know, is going down. Mm-hmm. So um, I did that for like two years, but my students won all kinds of awards uh, from scholastics. And I found out uh, that I was a very good teacher. As a matter of fact, what I did in college during the summertime, rather than come back to the East Coast, I was a camp counselor. And I was always like 10 years older than the kids that I was dealing with. And I, I really liked that relationship. That was really good. And I kind of continued that same relationship in the school that they put me in. This school was bad. I mean, they, they I started in February, and they said, uh, they kind of shoved me in the door. And these kids were running around going crazy in there. Mm-hmm. And they, they had thrown the teacher out of the window the year before. Wow. Uh, so they put me in there, and I was trying to figure out how I was going to, what I'm going to do with these kids. So I decided what I'd do take money out of my pocket and count it. Well, they got quiet. And the second time I counted the money, I said, how much is it? And somebody said $83. Somebody said $86. But they knew I had their attention. Right. And the whole thing. How do you get their attention? So I've been pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. At getting there. Um, were, you, were you able to keep it? Oh, yeah. Okay. I was very good. <laughs> what, were, what, were you, what, what were you teaching? Were you teaching art? Uh, I was teaching art. Mm-hmm. And this is back in the day when there were four art teachers in the building. Mm. And the head art teacher, his name was Hal Workman. And he dressed in a three-piece suit, the bebop. And uh, creased. You know, we were kind of like revolutionaries, so we had sports. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we weren't in the four-piece suit, the three-piece suit. But he, he was a great teacher. And he knew about black artists. He, all I knew about when I graduated was like the Mexican revolutionaries, but uh, Sequeiros, Rivera, Rothko, those cats. Mm-hmm. Um, but he knew about how, how uh, Hale Woodruff, mm-hmm. he knew some stuff about uh, Siebert, and uh, he knew some stuff about uh, Tanner, who was a favorite artist of his. Mm. And he started showing me work by black artists. And this so, is your, and this is your first time being introduced to the work of black artists. First time. Wow. Mm-hmm. I'd never seen it. And I was I was graduated from college, and I'd never seen it. How did uh, that? What did what did what did what did that mean for you? Oh, it meant that there was somebody on that road. See, my grandmother. Um, she was a domestic. And she was a domestic foreign artist. His name was Brian, uh, Mr. Brian. Can't think of his first name now. We call him Mr. Brian all the time. Anyway, uh, but he did public art. He had done some 
in Central Park, and he had uh, his office on Central Park South. Mm-hmm. Parents knew that there were at least white artists that were making a living doing art. So it wasn't like foreign to them. It was never foreign to anybody in my family that somebody could earn a living doing art. Mm-hmm. It's a big advantage. Yeah. Uh, though my father kind of doubted. <laughs> His idea was in order to live and you had to get dirty. But during that during during that time, I mean, that was you know, I mean, that was you know, common thinking. I mean, it was you know, limited limited opportunities for so many people, and I think you know, I mean, you know, you know, you, you know better than better than I do. But you know, one well, let me ask you this real quick because you know, I want I want to I want to jump in with this whole thing about you know, you're you you graduated from college, you're just getting introduced to the work of African American artists, and you know what I think I think a lot of that still happens today. Like I can't tell you how many students in art that I've come across that, you know, while they may not made it while they may know a couple, they only know a couple. They're only learning about two or three African American right. artists. I actually ran into an art student that's an art history uh major, you know, at at the local school here and she had no idea about so many things related to, you know, to to black art, to 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 scholars or historians or people in the field. And so Are you out of your way? In order to, you uh, because they won't put it in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember in at Ohio University, you know, I wanted to do a paper on a black artist. I wound up with the Mexicans because that was as close as I could get. And you know, right now there are four or five or seven different texts that deal with you know, history of African-American art, of course, which I've taught. Mm-hmm. When I started teaching, there was no text. Uh, the only thing out there in the early 60s, early 70s, was like uh, Porter, Modern Negro Art. Uh, and I joined NCA in 1969, 1970. And I was able to, James A. Porter at Howard, because that year the NCA was in D.C. So I, I met him because he, he gave a keynote address, but it was one of the last. But there was James A. Porter and there's Cedric Dover mm-hmm. and maybe one of other very small books on black art. And very few reproductions. Um, not like now where there's selections you can find almost everything on anybody. Uh, but then you had to do some serious digging. So in Cleveland, I, uh, I, I had bugged my, uh, my boss, who was the supervisor of art. How come, you know, keep putting black faculty in the black schools and white in the white schools. So after my kids won all these awards, he said, you want to integrate? Hmm. So, so what are right. you talking about? Right. Said, I got a school on the west side that you might like. 
So I said, no, I don't think so. I kind of like it here. Um, But I went and I talked to those people where I was teaching, Mm -hmm. who were in charge, who I respected, and told them, and they said, no, it's an opportunity, you have to take it. And my position was, yeah, but they're going to send some dumb white guy in here to take my place. They said, no, that's not your concern. You got to take the position in order to make jobs for other people. So I did. And uh, I did real good at the other school. And two years later, I, they moved me to the museum, the Cleveland Museum, which was a great job. Mm-hmm. At the Cleveland Museum, I would invite junior high students in, give them tours of whatever room the teacher wanted, you know, whether it was armor or Renaissance or, you know, Greek or Rome, whatever it was. And uh, during that time, I got my research, you know, kind of tight and together. And then I would take things out to the schools and give talks. And then once a month, I'd go on television and it'd be piped into the schools. I really liked that job. It was a great job. So, um, because I always liked teaching. I always liked being with the students. And several times in my life, people have said to me, you want to move up? Mm -hmm. And generally they mean administration. And I never wanted that. I I like being in the classroom. And that has saved me um, because I've seen other people go the administration route and their art dries up and it's dealing with shelf and paper. Right. And, uh, Anyway. You know, so I'm, so I kind of want to. I kind I definitely want to get into you know, Chicago. Getting the call to be invited to, you know, be one of the, the founding members of Afro Cobra. Can you can you talk? Let's talk a little bit about that. Well, I was, and I went to, and then at Kent State, I was working on a degree to uh, uh, MFA with a certificate. And with, with a concentration in painting, mm-hmm. that year I went to the College Art Association Conference in February. And um, I met Jeff Donaldson, uh, who was almost seven feet tall, <laughs> a visionary brother mm-hmm. of, of great charisma and uh, knew what he was talking about. And he looked at my slides, I was looking at his slides, and he told me, when he told me his name, I realized that his connection to the, uh, the wall of respect in Chicago, because two years earlier, in 67, Ebony had done a full spread on the wall of respect. Mm-hmm. Mentioned his name and a picture of him. So he, he told me that, he knew I was looking for a job teaching on the collegiate level now. So he said, get as close to Chicago as possible because Chicago is ground zero for the black arts movement. I'm sure he didn't use those terms, but that's what he meant. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got a job about an hour and a half outside of Chicago. 
And as soon as I got to DeKalb, Illinois, which is the barbed wire capital of the world, a Northern Illinois University, I uh, called him up. He invited me in to an Africa meeting. And that's where I met Wadsworth Jarrell, Jay Jarrell, uh, Gerald Williams, um, Carol and Lawrence, and um, Napoleon Henderson. And we were proposed next memberships, uh, number seven and number eight, into the organization of what was then called COBRA, Coalition of Black Revolutionary Art. Now, uh, I had been in the room before with people with great raps about what black art ought to be. Mm. But their work was nothing. And I've been in uh, in Cleveland. Um, I was part of the creative workshop where guys had great skills, but no politics. Mm. So we were copying things out of National Geographic uh, magazine, basically, and perfecting our skills. And I learned everything that everybody in there knew. I was a sponge. Um, so I went to the meeting, and it was probably the best meeting I've ever been to because everybody had their head screwed on right, and everybody had skills. And everybody loved black people. And Jeff uh, seemed to be the titular head of this. Mm-hmm. And I, that I could put faith in. Um, and Wadsworth Jarrell was just a great painter. And Carolyn Lott had a great coloring system. And Barbara Jones, I don't think I mentioned her name. Um, there were three women. Barbara Jones, later Barbara Jones Ogu, uh, was a great uh, silk screener. And I had originally done uh, work in silk screen and uh, we had a great relationship. She was good. So we had uh, our first major exhibit at the Studio Museum in Harlem in 1970. And we gave people ballots. Uh, and we said, if you could, you know, if you could afford it, which one of the pieces would you buy? Mm-hmm. So when we went back to Chicago, we had a tally of everybody's favorite, not favorite, but most popular piece. See, we weren't going to do what people told us to do. But if they chose it, we knew we were in the right direction. Mm-hmm. So we um, did silk screen prints of each one of the membership and sold them for $10, mostly at Operation Breadbasket, which was where Betsy Jackson uh, used to have Saturday. And he, he'd invite Roberta Flack and Isaac Hayes and The Temptations. And at that time, the uh, Jackson Five and uh, and we would sell our print, uh, sell our prints. We were selling them then at ten dollars a, pr- a 
a print and we're showing people how to use uh, shopping bags and saran wrap, you know, <laughs> in order to uh, put it on their walls at home. Right. Tell me this. Why? Why? You know, I'm, I'm, OK, one, uh, ten dollars is not a lot of money now. And I couldn't imagine it being, you know, a whole lot of money necessarily then. So I don't know what that would equate to in today's dollar. But let's just say it's a nominal fee. I mean, that's, you know, that being a nominal fee. Why? Down are worth five and seven and ten thousand dollars. No, I understand that, but I'm saying at the point of entry, like if, if it was ten dollars, then if you oh. were if you were going to introduce an inexpensive print, like what would that equate to now? Is that a hundred dollar print today? You know, but yeah. but my point. Yeah, I, okay. Because, because you can't get a silkscreen print for a hundred dollars. Right. So yeah. I mean, the, I guess the point. I mean, I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. What I'm trying what I'm trying to get to is why was it why was it really important. Why, why did y'all see that it was extremely important to make the art accessible to the community? It's kind of what I was trying to get to. Oh, well, it was a, the whole idea about by black artists, for black people, um, and at a price that black people could afford. We wanted to make it completely affordable. Mm -hmm. And to finance our organization because we never asked for a grant. Mm. Africa has never asked for a grant from the gov federal government or anybody else. Yeah, be careful where you take that money from, you know. Or they will dictate what your work looks like, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, I have a piece right now in D.C., at the National Gallery of African American uh, History and Culture, mm -hmm. where they have a line still, people trying to get in there. Um, but I have a piece there, and that was done in that environment in the 1970s, where nobody told us what to do. And what our idea was was to uplift black people. Mm -hmm and to address our work towards black people rather than artists earlier than us trying to get into museums and addressing their work towards white people. Hmm. But we understood the difference and how to deal with that. So um, in, in January, I met Jeff Donaldson in the summer of that year, I met Larry Neal. And Larry Neal is very important because he's a seminal architect for the black arts movement. He and Amiri Baraka, mm -hmm. there's no two people more responsible for the black arts movement than those two people. But Larry and I became almost inseparable till his death in 81. As a matter of fact, in 79, we shared a house together in Washington, D.C. Okay. before I went to Tuskegee and when I was on sabbatical there. Um, but Larry Neal became uh, very important. He also was influential in my life because um, when I got to University of Massachusetts in the Du Bois department, um, they had 
publication. And the students had been putting it out. And I always contributed to them. I gave them artwork to deal with. But at a certain point, they came to me. And they said, listen, um, you're going to have to make this into a class. Um, and the name of the magazine, Drum. Mm. So um, I didn't want to do it. Um, because uh, I thought that somebody else in the ought to do it, somebody in English or somebody in history or somebody, because we had a, a phenomenal I mean I joined the Black Studies Department with a writer named Chinuel Achebe who wrote things for Paul Pot, the most uh, celebrated African writer um, Julius Lester was in that department uh, Janetta Cole Mm-hmm. Later became president of Spelman, was in that department. Uh, Max Roach was in that department. Archie Shett. Uh, I can go down a list right. of notables in the department. Um, and I thought maybe somebody else would do it. But Larry Neal found this poem. Uh, and the poem read, Gather the children into the evening quiet of the living room and teach them the lessons of their blood. Mm. He said, Nelson, you think you can do that? (laughs) Yeah, I can do that, man. (laughs) So, um, and my wife pushed me in that direction, too. I forgot to mention that I was married in 1963. And uh, that was when I was in Chicago. And that's when I really fell in love with John Coltrane because he came to the Jazz Temple three times during that year. Mm-hmm. And almost, we, me and my wife almost got divorced because uh, she said, you going back down there to see him again? <laughs> I said, yeah. <laughs> let, let, me, let me ask you this. You know, earlier you mentioned that, you know, uh, Chicago being uh, ground zero for the black arts movement. Did I, did, right. did I catch that right? So, so, you know, but a lot of people, I mean, Chicago definitely doesn't get its due when you think about the art artists that came from there. But so many people think of New York and yeah. and that region. I mean, t- talk about the difference between the two. Well, New York, um, when we had our opening exhibit at the Studio Museum in Harlem, mm-hmm. when it was on Fifth Avenue before it moved to 125th Street, they're about to move it again. Yeah. But when it was on Fifth Avenue and headed by Ed Spriggs, mm-hmm. Bill Day, uh, Leroy Clark, a great artist from Trinidad, and Valerie Maynard, an, an African American artist of great note. Um, when it was there, um, the, the, the New York artist came to came to our exhibit and they were kind of envious um, because they had gone into a kind of uh, pride of Africa and drawing animals and trees and uh, how do I say this that, that they had we were going in after an African American aesthetic Mm. They were going after an African aesthetic. 
Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, in New York, there are so many mixtures of different... See, Chicago is black and white. Um, you don't have to make any concessions to other groups. Uh, where in New York you did. And the other piece is that New York has always been the marketplace for the art. Right. And the market forms what the art's about. Mm-hmm. If we had been thinking about the marketplace, we would have never done the art that we did. True that. True so, that. um, dealt with Jeff Donaldson, Larry Neal, uh, yeah, Drum Magazine. That became important. And Drum Magazine is now uh, digitalized in the Du Bois Library at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Mm-hmm. All 18 issues. Because uh, every semester we turned out an issue. And every year we won an award that we, uh, from Scholastics, or from the brothers in the penitentiary, because we, we mailed it to Angola, Louisiana, and a lot of places like that. But that, that's one of the classes I taught at UMass Amherst, out of the voice department. The other class that I taught was African-American art, or black art originally. And one of the things that we did that made the class so popular mm-hmm. and easier for me was to take my class on a Saturday trip to New York City, where we would uh, leave campus at 8 o'clock in the morning and get to the Schomburg at 11 o'clock in the morning when they opened. My students would go downstairs and order books that they wanted. Mm-hmm. They'd come upstairs and go to look at one or of the exhibit time and then go back downstairs and by that time the books were there and books that they couldn't get anyplace else because the Schomburg is connected with the New York City library system and they send them through tubes all around the city let me ask you this real quick because you mentioned you know black art and that's that's a hot topic for so many people struggling with identity or, you know, or, or not trying to be identified as such. Why do you think so many people have an issue with uh, that term? Black art? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Uh, I know originally my class was taught, I taught a class in black art in the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, we changed it to African-American art in the new world uh, sometime in the 70s, I guess. Um, And then we changed it to aesthetics of African art. Well, I kept changing it Mm -hmm. as appreciation and understanding grew. But um, lots of people don't want to be black. I mean, (laughs) we think about a black revolution and stuff, but there's a lot of people um, who haven't made that turn, who don't find the pride that you or I may find there, mm-hmm. and are only uh, thinking, for example, 
Margaret Barrows had a hard time. She she may be the of African American art artists, all of us in Chicago, but she didn't like the art. She didn't want it to be called black art because she thought black is always lost. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. So, uh, and she's right, of course. Um, but that's a hard lesson to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we champion blackness and Africanness from the inception of Africoba. As a matter of fact, the original name, I think I said this before, of COBRA, Coalition of Black Revolutionary Artists, mm-hmm. changed it to African Commune of Bad Relevant Artists. Mm-hmm. I, I particularly like the first title better. <laughs> Let me ask you this. When, when you, let me ask you this. When you think of when, when you think of nation building and revolutionary, is that for you? Was that something that was taught, or was it something that was learned in the sense that what did you grow up with that type of consciousness being taught in the home, or is it something you came to later? I came to it later. Hmm. Um, but that's why I'm glad I met Africa because we all had the same drive at the same time. Okay. With the same skill. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I grew up uh, on a block where you call somebody black, you had a fight. Um, but, you know, like now, I call a friend of mine, I say, black man. He says, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, tell me this, the, um, you know, a couple, couple more questions I've got. I want to definitely get to it. So when you talk, well, go ahead. There's a couple of things I want to, uh, I want to talk about the murals. Oh, please, please. Um, you know, I've seen the wall of, I would always go by the wall of respect on the way to the Africa meeting in order to get in the right uh, frame of mind because several of the members of Africa had worked on that mural. So when I got to Northern, when I got to UMass Hammers, I wanted to do mural. But I had to make a student uh, program to do the murals. And for four years, um, during the summer, I was able to give credit, art credit in the art department up to 15 credits for a summer program to a student. We were able to pay them. We were able to put them on scaffolding. Mm-hmm. I was able to teach them. And uh, we did about 30 murals over the four summers. And during that program, I was able to do, the first mural I did was to black women, which was, uh, Tall as a cypress, strong beyond definition, still defying time, place, and circumstance. Assailed, impervious, indestructible, look on me and be renewed. I love that last line. Mm-hmm. Look on me and be renewed. Mm-hmm. I, I put that on my first mural, uh, which I think was one of my best. But it got a national play. And that's how I got invited to Tuskegee to do their centennial mural. Mm-hmm. 
at the end of the 70s. Yeah. But, um, and that's how I got much better graduate students because I could promise a mother that uh, in September, if you give me your son now, uh, we'll take him off the streets, we'll put him in a dormitory, we'll feed him at the university, he'll be under my tutelage, and in September, he'll get 15 credits of art. Um, so it was a great scholarship for students for a period of time. What happened at the end of that period, year, fifth year, is my wife passed away, cancer, and uh, I had to discontinue that program. And I took a leave and went to D.C. for a leave of absence, my first leave of absence. But um, the murals, I believe, are a strength of the black arts movement that can't be denied. Um, when I got to UMass Amherst, I got there with Archie Chef, a musician, whose music I love, and he had just put out Attica. So I asked him, uh, can I do an album cover for you? And he said, sure. So he gets Ed Michelle. I'm glad I still remember the name. Ed Michelle. Mm -hmm. He said, there's a number of Ed Michelle in California. Tell him you're going to do the album. So I called Ed and uh, said, listen, uh, he said, well, Chef had no right to uh, tell you that because we have staff artists, staff writers, and everything is done on the premises of Impulse Label. So I said, well, um, thank you very much. Um, take good care of yourself. So I called Chef, and he said, come on by. So I went on by, and Chef and I are the same age, but he's a lot older. Dresses in three-piece suits, and uh, is much wiser than I. So he called Ed Michelle mm -hmm. and uh, said, "Ed, how you doing?" He said, "Great." He said, "Ed, do you want to release the album?" Here, speak to Professor Stevens. It's the best introduction I've ever had. <laughs> Yeah. Wasn't no threat. It was simply a fact of life. So um, uh, I call it a. Those are acts of courage. Um, I've had great friendships. Um, the other one, Max Roach, who uh, I joined at the same time. And a lot of people associate him with Charlie Parker and uh, Sonny Rollins and the bebop movement of the 40s, which he was part of. By the time I met him, he was, well, he was 50. No, he's in the mid-40s. Mm -hmm. And strong as ever. And uh, my wife and I, we got along great. Family, friends, good, good times. To the point when my wife was failing really badly, um, he asked, could he come by and see her? So I said, you sure? He said, so I 
went home and I asked my wife if uh, she was up to it. Because by that time, um, she was failing very badly. Uh, she, she was ill from cancer for three years. Mm-hmm. Now I was taking care of her at home and teaching and doing murals. So um, he came by. She said yes, he came by. They had a good time talking for about a half hour. She tired. And uh, two days later, three days later, a letter came addressed to her. Dearest Lynn, thank you for allowing me to witness you in your Christ-like suffering. I've used that a couple of times, Mm -hmm. and it's very effective. Because sometimes we don't know who that person is any longer. The pain has gotten them so bad. Yeah. It is Christ-like suffering. So, um, I say I have been in the presence of great men. I've learned from most of them great things, like integrity from Archie Chef and wisdom from Max Roach and vision Jeff Donaldson. Hey everybody, it's Najee Dorsey. I hope you're enjoying this installment of Viat Talks. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media pages. And if you're in the market for fine art, visit us at shopbaya.com. That's S-H-O-P-B-A-I-A.com, where you can see some of the latest of contemporary art as well as many of our legacy artists. Thanks for tuning in for another installment of Viat Talks. Enjoy the rest of the conversation. Oh, yeah. There you go. Preach. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, the black middle class does not get the credit that it should. Mm-mm. Because they find it, those prints of $10, $15, that's the black middle class. They saw the vision of it. Some of them took a $10 print and spent $150 to have it framed. Yeah, I actually know. I actually got a. I don't know. I don't know if you, you you know Patrick McCoy. I don't think so. In Chicago, yeah, he's a collector. He's got a um, the. Uh, he's got a print, a period print that you did. Um, it's the one with uh, Uru. Uru. Right. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's got he's got that one in his collection from back in the day. And it's a silk screen print. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's one of the prints that I was showing you about. We all printed everybody else's work, and then we went back to the new museum with a print that the people had said this is the one we want. We sold out. And the only, the only one that was fifteen dollars was Jets, because he had a, he was already at, in D.C. at Howard. Mm-hmm. And the following year, he invited me to come down, but I got an invite to go to Hammers at the same time, and Hammers um, took care of the paperwork. And my wife was saying, "I know Jets, your man, but Hammers filled out the paperwork." We, we got, you know, we got to go, but what, yeah. what I'm finding out, Jeff was powerful, powerful brother. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, it was hard to get people to work with him at Howard, let me put it that way. Okay. You uh you did you did quite a few you did quite a few, I mean, definitely women, no doubt, but uh, Stevie Wonders. <laughs> Stevie was your guy? Oh, very definitely. Stevie and I had some great conversations. Yeah. And um, the first time I got in touch with Stevie, I was working at Tuskegee on the mural. And Stevie had just released all of those powerful albums of his from the late 70s. And then got his own money together and put out a secret journey of the Life of Plants, which was dedicated to George Washington Carver. Hmm. And Carver was, a Booker T. Washington is a portrait on, on, on the, uh, uh, of the mural for Tuskegee, but George Washington Carver is very close. And I put the sweet potatoes, peanuts, you know, all kinds of stuff. Carver, Carver was a great guy. Mm-hmm. And an artist. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And uh, a visionary of all kinds. And I'll tell you one They say that Carver could make hair grow on the heads of people who had lost their hair. So when I got to Tuskegee, one of the Commodores told me about this, or Walter Orange. So I said, well, you know, I want to meet one of these people. So we went by, and I met this woman who was 90 at the time. I was like 35. And I said to her, uh, do you, and she had pure white hair. Mm-hmm. Snow white, it looked like, she looked like cotton, man. I said, uh, do you really believe that Carver grew hair on your head with his pomade? She said, I don't know about the pomade, but he had some very interesting hands. (laughs) (laughs) Oh shit. That's what's up. The uh how much how much how much how much of your work do you still have, like from from back then? I don't have very much. Mm -hmm. Uh 
Have you ever thought about? Um, I know you did the one. We, you did the one print with Curly. Have you thought about doing more edition works? That's good. That's that's a beautiful thing right there. Do you still when you are you able to still create? I mean, do you still create in this signature style of yours from that period? job for life, you know. Sounds good, good brother. I appreciate your time. Have a good, have a good rest of your day and, and week and month. And, you know? Thanks, John. 